as of now, we have a strong association between astrovirus 4 and especially coughing, but on our end, tracheitis and, and bronchitis in young pigs. You know, if if you've ruled out influenza, you know, I think maybe astro in that situation is, is a good second differential to have. Um, in terms of submitting tissues or, or samples to the diagnostic lab to, to see if this is a cause of disease, you know, we really like uh, fresh and fixed trachea and then fresh and, and fixed lung on the pathology side in order to make this diagnosis. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry, one that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here, you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swinet Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at Eastman.com. Adiseo is a worldwide leader in animal nutrition, providing nutritional solutions and services which fuel predictable profits. Genesis, the first power in genetics. This episode's sponsored highlight is about Adiseo, a worldwide leader in animal nutrition. Adiseo's portfolio of products includes methionine, the full range of vitamins, enzymes, organic selenium, probiotics, mycotoxin management strategies, and palatability products. With such a diverse offering, Adiseo supports its customers with a broad range of expertise, tools, and services to help them maintain a competitive advantage. Adiseo, fueling predictable profits. To learn more, visit Adiseo at www.adiseo.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Laura Greiner, your host for today's Swinet podcast. And with me today, I have Dr. Mike Ray, who's an assistant professor at Iowa State University, and Dr. Rachel Dushide, who is an associate professor at Iowa State University, both in the College of Veterinary Medicine. Mike and Rachel, how are you both doing today? Doing great. Great to be here. Good. Thanks. Oh, absolutely. I'm glad to have you both on today. I'm really excited about our conversation. Uh, we were talking just a little bit of before about this, and I don't know much about this topic, so I'm just as interested to learn uh, as I'm sure most of our audience will be as well. But before we start that, what I would like to do is just visit with you both briefly for a moment and give a little bit more, have you give a little bit more background about yourselves, uh, just so our audience is familiar with who you are. So uh, Mike, I'm going to have you go ahead and start first. Sure. Yeah, I grew up in, in eastern Iowa uh, around Dyersville just kind of on the, the border there between Wisconsin, Illinois, and Iowa. And I uh, grew up, my dad was a, a large animal veterinarian. I went to vet school at Iowa State, thought I'd follow in his footsteps. And somewhere along the way, I wound up being very interested in immunology and pathology. And so after vet school, instead of going into mixed animal practice, I went up to University of Minnesota and did a PhD up there with Mike Murtaugh and really enjoyed uh, that experience. We, we really focused on the uh, immune response to PERS virus, uh, specifically just kind of tracking down the memory response, which is, which is neat. And then probably about three quarters of the way through my PhD, I was doing a side project where we were looking at uh, lymphoma in pigs. And it really got me interested again in, in pathology. And so I was, I was contacted by uh, Pat Halber and Roger Main, and they said, hey, would you want to come back down to Iowa State and do um, you know, pathology training? 
just kind of a, a residency within the diagnostic lab and then also with our veterinary pathology department. And it, it sounded and seemed kind of like the next evolution um, of my training. And so I came back to Iowa State in, in 2017 and uh, did the residency, went through path boards and have been a, a diagnostician here at the Iowa State PDL for um, since I finished that up in, in 20, late 2019. And then uh, have been doing research, a uh, little bit of PERS immunology, but also into just viral, um, viral respiratory disease and, and viral respiratory pathology. Uh, some work with bovine coronavirus and cattle and some of the work we'll talk about today and uh, horse and astrovirus in pigs. Wonderful. Very good. Rachel, how about you? Can you share a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah, I'm an Iowa girl, um, Southern Iowa. Um Grew up on a grading cattle farm, was one of those always going to be a vet kids, thought I would go back to small town Iowa and work with, with farmers like my dad. And I, sort of like Mike, somewhere along the way, I got sidetracked into pathology. So worked with Dr. Mark Ackerman and did a residency and PhD here. So I did all my, my bachelor's and my DVM, my residency and my PhD here at Iowa State. Briefly worked with uh, non-human primates. So that was a little different, but it really emboldened me to come back to the diagnostic lab. And they had an opening in 2013. And I've been here since 2013 as a diagnostic pathologist. Taking cases primarily, um, a small appointment in research. My primary area is within mycoplasma, but then I've really had some opportunities here trying to learn more about the pathogenesis of some emerging diseases. So um, Streptococcus zooepidemicus. Um, I was involved with some of the, the write-ups of, of that, some outbreaks with that. And then with this porcine astrovirus 4 as well as, as a few other things here and there. Although when I get to have a, a graduate student, um, they, they are typically working on swine mycoplasmas and mycoplasma diagnostics. Perfect. Well, wonderful. I think, you know, as you both were introducing yourselves, you both talked about porcine astrovirus, and I, and that's obviously the topic that we're going to hit on today. And it's one that some of our audience may not really be familiar with. Um, I have heard of it, and, and yet for me, I don't really understand how much of a troublemaker it is relative to some of our other pathogens that we think about, i.e. flu, uh, mycoplasma, strep, etc., so maybe let's just start there. How did we come about discovering astrovirus and and its potential to even be a factor in in pigs? Yeah, that's a great question. I'll take that one if the if that's okay, Mike. Um, it really, if if people are not aware of the veterinary diagnostic lab, I'm sure many of your listeners are, but we have a a very large swine caseload, and so we see a lot of things here and. It really came about because we had some savvy practitioners that sent us some samples and said, we're not getting to the bottom of this. And that's really where it, where it, where it initiated. And that what we were seeing were some, some lesions. So we were seeing both gross lesions. So the lungs came in um, and we saw lesions of like, man, this really looks like influenza, primarily in these young pigs a little bit before or after weaning. And then under the microscope was like, that that sure looks like influenza. And again, it was these savvy practitioners pushing a little bit harder. They said, you know, we, we've we've done a lot of testing for influenza. We don't think it's just multifocal nature of lesions or, or timing of sampling. And 
proceeded with some next generation sequencing, identified this porcine astrovirus 4, and then worked um, on developing a direct detection method. And there, there was already a, a published probe, an available probe um, for in situ hybridization. And if you're not as familiar with that as you might be with immunohistochemistry, I like like to think about, about think of it as kind of the baby of PCR and immunohistochemistry. So you have the the PCR factor as you're looking at using a molecular probe. So we're actually um, looking for nucleic acid RNA in this case, and we're using that probe to look at tissue directly. So Mike and I are both pathologists. So we, we, we trust our eyes, what we see a lot. We look at lesions a lot. And so the beauty of moving beyond just PCR is not just detection, but able to actually identify where that agent, in this case virus, is located. And if we can match that up with a lesion. And we were able to do that. And it was pretty impressive but it still didn't tell us, we don't know fully what else is there, what other pig factors there may be, or, or what other environmental factors or agent factors there might be. But we had a few of these cases, and it kind of led us to the next step that I'll let Mike talk about of this retrospective study that we stepped into. Yeah, and, and so Rachel pointed out, this is porcine astrovirus 4. You might have heard of porcine astrovirus 3, Dr. Bailey Aruda. Uh, and maybe some others here at the ICVDL uh, several years back did a really nice job of characterizing the way that that astrovirus is associated with uh, with basically encephalomyelitis in pigs. Um, and so this is a different lineage. Um, there's a number of different astroviruses out there which seem to be most specific, meaning that as humans, we have our own astroviruses. Pigs have their own. Cattle have their own. There's some in poultry as well. And there's really not a lot known about them because they're kind of, they've always kind of been thought of as just part of our, our virome, uh, which is a more recent term. But basically, they think of those as viruses that can be within a body, but they don't necessarily cause disease. They may be have infected, but they're, they're not resulting in, uh, again, in clinical disease. And so that's kind of the way that a lot of people have thought about porcine astroviruses for, uh, for a while. And Bailey's work, I think, kind of showed that, hey, no, wait, these actually, they can be pathogenic. And that was with, again, porcine astrovirus 3. And so with, with Rachel's example, you know, I think you had at least two cases, Rachel, uh, where it was, you know, you had a lesion, you had clinical disease, they're describing coughing. You know, we know that it's not influenza, we keep testing for it, it keeps coming back negative. And so then when you do next generation sequencing to basically say, you know, what agents are here in this sample that, that is diseased? You know, you find this astrovirus and, and I think initially you, you had a couple, I think I had a couple and it was like, all right, but dogma would say that this is just there. Um, but when you keep finding it, it it's kind of like, you know, if you're, if you think you're a good, a good driver, but you keep getting in accidents, eventually you start thinking, you know what, <laughs> I might be a bad driver. And I think that's kind of the way that we looked at, at Astro Ford. I think it was a conversation in the hallway uh, here at work where it was like, hey, do you keep having cases where it's not flu, but we have lesions and you find this astrovirus? And, and so basically what we did is we said, all right, so we have anecdotal evidence that this is a potential cause of, of respiratory disease in pigs. So what do we do? And so what we decided to do was to do a large retrospective study. 
So we went through our cases here at the Iowa State uh, VDL and pulled, um, I think it was initially about 1,300 cases in pigs, anywhere from, from neonates to six weeks of age. Um, and what we were looking for were cases where we had uh, you know, lesions of either a viral tracheitis or bronchitis. And for us as pathologists, they have a specific kind of look to them, um, which we can identify under the microscope. We wanted them to be influenza negative. So having been tested previously for influenza via PCR and be negative for that, um, because influenza will cause that lesion. And what we didn't want to do is we didn't want to confound the identification of Astrovirus 4 in a, in a flu lesion and basically say, no, this is Astro 4, when in reality it was influenza. Um, so we had to make sure that the cases we had already been tested and were negative for influenza. And then we had to make sure that we had basically formalin-fixed paraffin-embedded tissue to go back and to test and evaluate. Um, and so what we use that tissue for is that's what is cut and, and made um, into our slides that we evaluate as, as pathologists. Um, and so ultimately what we were trying to do was to basically whittle down those 1,300 cases to a number which we could then use direct detection methods, which Rachel was talking about earlier, to interrogate and see okay, if astrovirus 4 is there, is it in the lesion that I can see under the scope? Um, and so what we wound up with is we had 117 cases, again, in that, that age range from neonates to about six weeks of age. And every single one of them had lesions of a viral, either tracheitis or bronchitis or, or bronchiolitis. So it was really small airways. And what we did is we went through with, with a punch biopsy, which is classically used in veterinary medicine to um, to you know, on small animals to to take samples of of maybe masses that they submit for biopsy for us to read out. We use those punch biopsies to actually punch out specific areas of our of our tissue block that were um, that had lesions in them. And so then what we would do is we would take those and, and we could make um, make new slides. And so we'd actually have six cases on one slide as opposed to one case on one slide. And so through all that process. Um, we did our, our in-situ hybridization, which Rachel uh, talked about, so trying to identify again that, that uh, nucleic acid within the lesion. And then I stepped away from it. We had three uh, diagnosticians who hadn't seen the cases before, grade those cases, you know, whether the, the agent was there or wasn't. And I think when we got into it, we thought, you know what, if we find this in, in between 10 to 20% of the cases we evaluate, that's a home run. You know, that's evidence that, hey, this is... is there's strong association there between this virus and, and this lesion. And to our surprise, we found it in 73% of the cases. And that was, I, I think it was, uh, it kind of floored us to be honest. Um, and, and the remarkable thing about it is it wasn't even just, you know, yeah, it's there, but in very low quantities. In a lot of these cases, you could literally just pick up the slide and be like, yes, positive, positive, positive. There was so much virus uh, in those airways. Uh, and so, you know, the conclusion of this was really there's a, a very strong association in those cases of Astrovirus 4 with, uh, with tracheitis, bronchitis, and bronchiolitis. So out of curiosity, if I'm listening correctly, you believe that, that um, Astrovirus is part of the virome that just exists within the animal and it becomes opportunistic, or do we believe that this is truly being an infectious organism passed from, from pig to pig. Yeah, I, I think we, we're learning more about this. I don't think we have this fully worked out yet. 
you know, what we're finding is that basically this virus is it's endemic, right? It's it's in commercial pigs. Uh, pre-existing immunity, maybe maternal immunity, maybe play a large role in either the development, uh, the manifestation of disease or or not. Um, it seems to be in the cases that we've had since then that it's either in, in late farrowing, so when pigs are about 18 to 21 days of age, uh, in some of those cases, you know, where there's, um, where we don't find flu, but we have these lesions, you know, we'll have it. I think generally it's, it seems to be more in, in gilts and in maybe situations where they don't have as good of um, gilt acclimation programs. And then also probably the majority of cases that I've seen have been post weaning. And so you have this very stressful event of weaning, they're on a new diet, you're mingling all these pigs. Um, and so their, their immunity is probably not great. Maternal immunity is starting to wane. And now you've had exposure to a bunch of potential you know, variants of, of this virus that they haven't seen before. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't know with Astro 4 if it's truly just part of the virome or if immunity tends to um, prevent us from having, having clinical disease with that. I think we're still working that out. For sure. I, I think from that perspective, I, and we don't have enough to say right now, I'm starting to kind of think of it a little bit about like, like rotavirus maybe. So you can, it, rotavirus is certainly pathogenic. You can also find it in situations where you're going to find at least low levels of it. But there will be situations either, again, from an environmental standpoint where you have a lot of virus or a stress standpoint where you have a lot of stress on the animals, or maybe in general, some animals are, are more susceptible. But I, we think that's where it's at. But it, it also, it's looking quite a bit like influenza in that, I mean, the, the clinical picture is maybe a bit milder than what we see with influenza, but often in these these young pigs, especially the suckling pigs, the influenza doesn't seem to be as bad in those pigs as it would be in post-weaning, whereas we're seeing it maybe slightly less severe than influenza post-weaning, if that makes sense. But again, it's we, we don't always have, I mean, full clinical details. So these are this is the best picture that we have right now but we're not even really sure like it's looking like maybe we have it more from guilt litters, but we really haven't gone into any of that in detail. So at the beginning of this, maybe it was a little bit disconcerting to you because Mike said, well, we don't know that much about this either. Well, it's true. We're still learning a lot about it. Um, so I think we have really opened the door for this, but there's still a lot that we, that we don't know about the virus. And I think that's fair. And, and that's right. That's the exciting part of, of what you do is you, you discover and you learn. It can be a little bit frustrating from probably the producer side, because if I was sitting here today going, oh, great, there's another number, right? I've, I've done PCV2A and B, and now you gave me three, and, and now we've done Astro 3, and now we're going to four. And, and so it can feel a little bit overwhelming for them, I'm sure, but maybe help understand or help them understand a little bit about what's different between Astro 3 and 4 um, to kind of help them understand a little bit about if there's a different way that they should be approaching it. And I know this is still young in, in your conversations too, but what makes 4 different from 3? Yeah, it's genetic, right? So mm -hmm. basically these viruses are typically grouped based on their amount of genetic material that they share. 
And so that's why you have PCV3 and, and PCV2, right? They're, they're different enough that they get a kind of a different name. And, and it's the same thing with, with these astroviruses. Now, that the interesting thing about these is that we really have no idea the amount of genetic diversity within even different lineages. So, so within astrovirus 3, within astrovirus 4. And I, I, you know, it's still early, but I would think that there's actually pretty tremendous amount of diversity within just that astrovirus 4 lineage. Um, so there's some some researchers here at Iowa State uh, working on that, trying to figure that out. Because the other the other interesting and, and frustrating part of this virus is that we can find it in nasal swabs. We can also find it in fecal swabs at very low CT, so uh, high amounts of nucleic acid in, in feces. And we're still not sure that that's the same astrovirus 4 if that makes sense. So that might be that the further we dig into the genetic diversity of this virus, Astro 4 may split and there may be multiple um, multiple different astrovirus 4s that, that then need to have different names and make this all more confusing. But we're in the early days of this and, and we're trying to figure it all out. Yeah. So do you have studies coming up uh, when you're looking specifically, if you, do you have an isolate of, of Astro 4 that you can work with and do some infection work and, and start to tease that apart a little bit or are we or is it this like a, a road to see where it's really hard to grow in in-house and, and have available for studies we've been trying for at least over a year now rachel right i feel like yeah. it's been yeah and we still have not been able to isolate it it's uh it's a little bit frustrating that way in the human side you know they think they also struggle to to isolate astroviruses and one of the reviews that I've read recently, basically the summary was it makes no sense which cell lines are used to isolate the different types of human astrovirus. And on astrovirus three, I, I, we don't, and we've never been able to isolate that. I think the only way they reproduce disease was just was just with you know, purified tissue homogenate. You know, and so that's kind of it's really frustrating. It makes it difficult to study. It'd be really nice if we could get an isolate. Um, we'll continue to work on it though. In the meantime, you know, one of the things that we have left to do is really, you know, to prove can this cause disease. We've shown, shown a really strong association with our retrospective study, but really it doesn't, it's just correlation, right? It's not causation. And so what we're, what we're planning now is, is trying uh, a challenge study with tissue homogenate from a, a tissue case that we, we had recently. And so um, just trying to see, you know, if we, if we put this purified virus back in pigs, especially which should be susceptible pigs in terms of age and, and immunity, you know, will we see identical disease with it? So uh, we'll see. Have you noticed that there are certain sow farms that, that tend to have a, a higher prevalence of it? Have you gotten that far into any of your analysis or is your retrospective study pretty blinded in that you really don't know where the pigs came from or flows or anything of that nature? We can go down to at least state, and it's got it's pretty widespread across the states for uh, when looking at our submissions. And the the other thing, probably prior to the retrospective study, was that very savvy, well managed uh, sites and flows were the ones to identify it because they they were very clean from for other things, and so they were more likely to notice this 15 to 20% coughing with low morbidity that they could not attribute to, to flu and were even, were even flu, flu negative. 
Um, so we, it's, doesn't look like it's limited just to Iowa or the Midwest. It's kind of, it's kind of everywhere, but again, we, we don't, and while we did a good amount of retrospective study because we're pathologists, what we were looking for and what we wanted to say was we want to see association with disease. So, um, you know, with, with a lot of these things that we've looked at, I mean, if you think about like PCV2, for example, what we ended up doing was going back and looking at serum from past even decades to say, when did this come in? Like, why didn't we identify it? And so there are just certain truths about the how the swine industry works, where sometimes, depending on what the disease is like, if it's a PED, yeah, we're probably going to notice when that comes. But if it's the onset of another endemic agent, especially in conjunction with these other endemic agents, particularly in populations that are under high stress, like nursery populations that are coming in mixing, it's difficult to tease all that out. So there's there's a lot of work to be done for the, the budding epidemiologists out there or our practitioner partners. There's a lot of opportunities, opportunities that we could have in studying this disease. Mm-hmm. And if I heard you right, the disease has pretty low mortality, but it's obviously still showing signs of, of disease. And so we're probably concerned more about potentially setting the stage for co-infections and, and causing bigger problems. Is that based on your pathology reviews and, and what it's doing to the cells? Is that kind of what we're looking at? Or is there a higher mortality to this than what we were thinking initially? I think it's fairly low from what from what we've had. So there is mortality. The other thing that I would... so. Um, uh, porcine parrot influenza virus one has also been identified as in this population of pigs. And I would kind of put it in between influenza and PPIV one. So porcine astrovirus four is kind of in between. So I think it's, it's definitely causes more lesions. Like I very, very rarely, and even in infection studies, saw minimal lesions with PPIV. And I, again, my bias as a pathologist is I want to see what it does to better understand what it is doing. And as probably not one of the more brilliant people out of our amazing staff here, it was easy to say, that's a lesion. I can identify um, viral nucleic acid in that, in that lesion. So it's nice in that way. But as to impact, again, like you said, but like with, with the other agents, I, I don't know. Would it have an additive effect or would they almost have like a deleterious effect on each other, right? Because they're attacking the same cells. And so, you know, if flu comes in and and is likely more virulent, right? Is it going to basically eliminate all the target cells for Astro 4? And so then it's not really going to do anything. Um, Or does the infection of those things together somehow, you know, um, just eliminate more epithelial cells if that's even possible? Um, So make disease more severe. And again, until we really, until we isolate this thing, it's going to be very difficult to, to prove that to basically have a, a co-infection study. So hopefully we'll, we'll strike gold on this at some point. I think it's another, you know, Rachel brought up PPIV. I think it's, it's interesting to point out. So in that retrospective study that we did with those 117 cases, we did Astro 4 in situ hybridization. We also did um, porcine hemagglutinating encephalomyelitis virus or PHEV. So we did ish for PHEV. We also did ish for PPIV1. And we found PHEV in, in six out of the 117 cases. Those were all astrovirus 4 negative cases. And we found PPIV1 in five out of the 117 cases. 
and three of those cases were also positive for astrovirus. Um, and so it, there's questions there of co-infection or in those cases that we've been chasing in the past for PPIV1, is it actually astrovirus causing the lesion or, you know, it, there's just, there's a lot of questions involved with when you get into co-infections. So um, yeah, isolation would really help us move this forward. Certainly with any of these epithelial tropic viruses, um, so those ones that target specifically the airway. So in this, we see it sometimes in the trachea without being in the actual airways of the lung, without being in the actual bronchi, but the, the tracheitis and the bronchitis, it's, if this is your tube and it's, and it's lined by your epithelial cells, they've got nice little cilia that are going to beat and move all of those bacteria and the mucus is going to work together. When you have that ciliary damage, it's definitely, it's a, it's a direct effect of increasing susceptibility to, to bacterial disease anyway. So secondary bacterial. Yeah, it's a very good and point. We, we haven't really looked, we haven't really looked. So when we, when it, with some, some other infections, there can be an effect on the immune system that may interact and may, may predispose or protect somewhat from some other either viral or bacterial infections as well. Yeah, that's actually really interesting. And you, you hit a couple of my questions right there, too, because I was going to go back and ask you about which cells and if we saw any immune function parameters in there as well. So that that actually was actually very good for me because I right, I'm just curious to know because you'd mentioned trachea and lung. And so these mm -hmm. are the same solid as that's hitting in both or not. But it sounds like it is. So. Um, yeah, pretty much. It is very interesting. And it does. It, and it's one of those things like once you start looking, you start asking more questions because it did set up with the it, it aligned very well with the lesions in general. But there were some cases where we did have um, virus detected again by in situ hybridization, sometimes down in the alveoli. Primarily, it's going to it was in those lesions. So right in the airways and the trachea, especially in the larger bronchi. But in some cases, it looked like it went deeper as well. And in a few cases, we had some deeper and not as much in the airways. And we don't really know, again, because this is from, these are from field cases. We don't know any differences between those individual viruses. We don't know the differences in pigs. We don't particularly know like a, a wider range of co-infections. We don't know immune status. So there's a, we don't know timing of infection. So we really don't, there's a lot more questions. But we, we, there's, we basically generated enough information to say, this might be a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's actually, it's great work. And I applaud you both. I think it's, um, on one hand, it's always exciting to discover new diseases or new, new viruses or bacteria that could be involved in, in animal disease. Maybe not so much if you're on the opposite side, struggling to figure out why these animals are sick or whatever. But um, certainly as, as we get that knowledge, it enhances our ability to manage those animals and in the long run, do what we want them to do. And that's improve the welfare and the well-being of the animals. So um, I applaud you both for your work. Um, well, I kind of see that our, our time conversation is wrapping up and I would like just to have a couple of key points or key takeaways that you would like our, our audience to think about today uh, after our conversation around astrovirus. I'm going to turn the floor back over to you both for just a couple of key takeaways. Mike, you want to go? Yeah, yeah, I can start. You know, I think the big thing is, as of now, we have a strong association between astrovirus 4 and especially coughing, but on our end, tracheitis and, and bronchitis in young pigs. You know, if 
if you've ruled out influenza, you know, I think maybe Astro in that situation is, is a good second differential to have. Um, in terms of submitting tissues or, or samples to the diagnostic lab to, to see if this is a cause of disease, you know, we really like uh, fresh and fixed trachea and then fresh and, and fixed lung on the pathology side in order to make this diagnosis. And then with all the genetic diversity, potential genetic diversity of this virus, especially the potential GI component, um, the way that we use to diagnose it is to have a microscopic lesion and then pair that with either PCR result with a very low CT or, and this is optimal, um, using in-situ hybridization to find that virus within the lesion. There's been a lot of questions on oral fluids. Is that an effective tool? You know, I think as of now, not knowing how how that how much variation may be in astrovirus four, I would be concerned about potential GI virus, um, you know, confounding a, an oral fluid PCR result. Very good, Rachel. Do you have anything that you want to add? Sure. Yeah, my take home from this, and it was a a, a good reiteration for me, but just for our swine veterinarians, our producers, our farm managers, what was really critical was this partnership. So the samples that we got and the communication was really critical to opening up this avenue and really critical to moving swine health forward. And we couldn't do what we do without you and that with all the listeners and we are here for them and really appreciate what they put into their submissions. Excellent point. Excellent point. It's time for our famous three. Swine It podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like Swine Management to the Next Level, cloudfarms.com. Ivonic, we are sciencing the global food challenge. Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts, MS Gold, the best hygiene products in livestock farming. Ivonic stands for a holistic and sustainable value proposition for livestock production. It combines products and services and leverages digital solutions. This is all backed with high value consultancy and deep customer understanding. Ivonic turns science-based efficient nutrition, sustainable healthy nutrition, and precision livestock farming into value for customers and consumers. Well, both of you, as we wrap up our time today, we'd like to ask our guest speakers just a couple of basic questions. So we'll start off with the first one, which is, um, what is your go-to swine resource? So Mike, you're on my left. I'll have you go first. What What is your go-to resource? Disease of swine. Absolutely. <laughs> I use it. would not uh, be a if you didn't. If not every day, every other day, oh man, it's uh man, it's, it's vital to what we do as pathologists for sure. Absolutely. Rachel, would you agree or do you have a, another book that that's, you'd recommend? That's absolutely it. Um, I am, I am blessed to work with a number of the authors of that. And so yeah, knocking, going up and down the hall and shooting some emails to my colleagues. So my people would be the other thing that are the biggest resource for me. Yep. Absolutely. I have that book open on my desk as we speak. So <laughs> it is a go-to. Yep. It is classic. Well, how about something that's not related to pigs? Is there anything that you currently read or have recently read that you would like to share with the group that, that you think would be of value? Um, Mike, we'll have you start with that one as well. Yeah, I, you know, I, I really enjoy reading. I love nonfiction, just trying to, to figure out 
you know, just kind of historically how things were and compare them to, to how we live now. And, and uh, so, yeah, anything, any good nonfiction, I really enjoy, you know, I, I've recently got into more fiction, uh, which is kind of fun, you know, just trying to turn off the TV as much as possible and spend more time reading. And um, I recently read uh, Tree Grows in Brooklyn, which was really surprising to me. It was one that my wife recommended. And uh, I thought, you know, it's, it doesn't really sound like a book that I would like, but uh, it was a really interesting, really interesting novel, um, which was kind of semi-autobiographical, I guess, from what I read uh, about the author afterwards, but just about her growing up in Brooklyn in you know, the early 1900s and just thinking about um, how different experiences impact kind of where we wind up. So it was an interesting read in terms of that. Yeah, sure. Wonderful. Rachel, do you have a book you'd recommend? Well, I usually do fiction and I need light and fluff, but I do read nonfiction as well. And one thing that I, I try to do is expand my perspective. And so being a lifelong learner and part of it is, again, trying to connect with people. And I'm currently reading Temple Grandin's newest book, Visual Thinking. And it really is. It, it's one of those books where I'll come across something and it's like, wow, it, it just reminds you that people think differently from you. And we kind of tend to believe and get in a rut of like, this is how I do things. Like, this is what happens in my day-to-day -day life. And this is what happens in everybody's day-to-day -day life. So uh, learning new perspectives and seeing the world from a different perspective, I, I think is is really beneficial. I'm I'm enjoying it quite a bit. Hatford, that's a good book too. Mm -hmm. Well, very good. Well, the last question we have for both of you uh, kind of goes down the road of, if you could think of someone in your life that you define as successful and you can define success however you want, what's a trait that that person possesses that you think has allowed them to be successful? And again, we'll start with Mike. Oh, man, I was hoping you were going to say Rachel on this one. Oh, well, I can flip it. Well, Rachel, we'll start with you. you anything Mike, that comes to mind? Do you have an answer right now, Rachel? Go for it. <laughs> well, I had a couple of things. So I had one one that I uh, that was a little bit different uh, of advice. It, I think it was, I'm going to uh, skew it a little bit, but advice to give. And it sounded, it, in some ways, it, it sounds kind of almost almost terrible, but the ability to say no. Um, and that's, and partly because it's, our world is a fascinating place. The swine industry is fascinating. Veterinary medicine is fascinating. Even when you break it down into pathology, it's all so exciting. And there's only so much of you to go around. There's only so much of me to go around and figuring out what passions are and being able to pursue those wholeheartedly. Yeah. Yeah. Very oh. good point. Excellent. Great answer. <laughs> I wish you would have gone first now. I wouldn't have to follow that. Yeah. Oh man. I'm gonna I'm gonna sound a little bit Spartan here. Uh I would you know, self-discipline I feel like is so huge for for success. And you know, it depends how you define success, obviously, but that's one of the things. If you have a goal, having the ability to to stay focused on that goal, to maybe say no to things which can trip you up on your, on your path to that goal or can sidetrack you. Um, you know, that's just, it's very important in terms of achieving objectives. And so, yeah, I think self-discipline is, is huge. And, uh, it, there's a, there's a, a term out there now, or there's a phrase out there now with discipline equals happiness, which I think is true. I've just found that to be kind of true in my own life. So 
That what's the the face there, Rachel? Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. I don't know. I don't know. But again, the the lesson I've had to learn is to say no. But that's because oh, this is so exciting. This is so exciting. And while that seems very good in in, in one way, like very cerebral, we're going to have this intense discussion. But having the discipline to be able to say, okay, I can't, I can't get excited about something new. I gotta, I gotta stay on this path just a little bit. And and for me, because I am an excitable person, then the the discipline in general is difficult. But so is saying no. And those are those are they're not even two sides of the same coin, but but uh, different views of the same side of a of the of the coin. I think of, of the ability to say no, and and having that discipline. So absolutely. Yeah. It's a compliment. You you both complimented each other very well. Yeah. Well, this has been a a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed the opportunity to visit with you both on learning a little bit more about Forsyne Astrovirus 4 and kind of where we're at on what we know, what we don't know, and and, uh, what our next steps forward are. Um, Again, for our listeners, this is Dr. Rachel Descheid and Mike Ray. Uh, who are both uh, pathologists at the College of Veterinary Medicine at Iowa State University. Rachel and Mike, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, you, Dr. Greiner.